Well, we're starting a new series called Redemption. And we're going to be studying the Exodus in the Old Testament. We're going to see how it all foreshadows and parallels what Jesus does then later on the cross. Sometimes you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament, at least I always did, especially growing up, as separate from the new, right? It's old. Like, why would I read that? Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever had that kind of bias maybe in your spirit or in your heart? Well, the reality is that the Old Testament actually, it totally sets up the New Testament and it points forward to it. And if you know where you're looking and you understand the text, you see Jesus himself actually show up multiple times in the Old Testament. Because Jesus didn't just start to exist when he was born, right? That's just when he put on flesh. He's, he's always existed. He, he's God. He's eternal. And the Exodus is the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament, and it points us forward to Jesus' work on the cross. So with that, let me pray. And then we're, today's kind of just a big introductory message. So we're going we're gonna to do a big flyby of a handful of different things, and uh, we're going to move fast. Sound good? All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks that, uh, Jesus, you came to live the life that I never could to die the death that I definitely deserve and to give me your righteousness. Lord, I I pray this morning uh, that as we look at just a really seminal event in history and in the biblical text, that uh, you would would guide my words and my thoughts even as I teach and preach, that you would uh, guide all of us by your spirit. uh, Help us to understand it uh, more fully to love you more, to give you greater glory. And yet at the same time, while there is depth to it, there's great simplicity in the gospel. So help us to grasp and understand that as well. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, let's just do some introduction, introduction to the Exodus. Now, uh, growing up, you know, the Exodus was Charlton Heston for me, right? Standing there and I got confused, like, because he was always on NRA commercials too when I was a kid. And like, so did Moses stand there and raise his gun and part the Red Sea? Like, what exactly happened? But, but the Exodus, a lot of people know the story, right? The Exodus itself really refers to, and, and a lot of times culminates around one big event in Exodus chapter 14, where uh, Moses has freed God's people. God has freed his people. Moses is simply leading them. And they get to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is chasing them and they seem to be trapped. But then God tells Moses, raise your staff. He parts the waters and they cross out of the land of Egypt on dry ground. Pharaoh's army comes chasing after and the water encloses them and they never see them again. It's an incredibly powerful story, an incredibly powerful truth because it's not just a story. It's something that literally happened. I believe. And, uh, but there's more to the Exodus than just the crossing of the Red Sea. When you look at it as its whole, from the time that, uh, that Moses was called by God, I believe Jesus speaking to him through the burning bush to the time that he goes and speaks to Pharaoh and he leads them out and then crosses the Red Sea. And then he leads them in the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And they're on their way to the promised land. All of it is a picture of the gospel. 
In fact, as I said already multiple times, the Exodus is the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament. But one thing that's really helpful and really important for you to understand what's happening in Exodus, why are they going to the promised land? You got to kind of understand the backstory. You got to know a little bit of biblical history of kind of what's happening. And so I'm going to try to give you as best I can a quick flyby of, of history up through Genesis. Yeah, yeah. If you're ready, say go. Okay, good. Here we go. So in the beginning, you know that part, right? In the beginning, who? God, God created everything and everything was created by him and through him, through Jesus, by the way, Colossians tells us, and it was good and it was perfect. Relationships were perfect. Everything was perfect. And God gave Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden. And it's not like the garden in your backyard. It's a garden like a big national park. Like if you look at the boundaries listed out in scripture, it's something like Yosemite, right? Or Yosemite or Yellowstone or whatever. It's a huge park. And they have rule over the whole thing. And God gives them only one rule. He says, don't eat from one tree in the middle of the garden, because as soon as you eat of it, you'll surely die. One rule. Well, then you get to, it goes good for about two chapters. And then you get to chapter three. And uh, Eve is hanging out by this tree. And uh, Satan comes to her in the form of a serpent and says, did God really say not to, to eat of that tree? And she goes, yeah, if we eat of it, we'll die. He goes, you will not die. Do you know why he doesn't want you to eat from that? Because if you eat of it, then you'll become like it. Well, the reality is, if you look back in Genesis 1, they were already created in the likeness of God and then given activity to carry out. Satan reverses it. That's his plan all the time to reverse what God says. So he says, no, do this activity, eat from the tree, and then you'll have an identity. But that's not what God told him. But, but unfortunately, what does Eve do? She eats the fruit. She sins. And before we blame Eve, right, where was Adam? Standing right next to her because he, she turns and hands him the apple. So I, I, I think there's a good argument to be made. He's just as culpable as, if not more culpable than she is because he didn't protect his wife and stop her from eating it. And they both eat of it. And immediately they know that they're naked. Immediately for the first time, think about this. The first time ever they feel shame. None of us have any, none of us can even imagine what it's like to never feel shame. Uh, some of us feel it all the time. But in an instant, for the very first time, they felt shame. They knew they were naked, they ran, they hid from God. But God, in His grace, in His grace, His grace shows up right away in the beginning of the text. He makes a promise to them. Now, God comes looking for them. He says, where are you? You know, why are you hiding? And they, they find them and they said, well, we, we ate of it. Who told you to eat of that? And they, they confess their sin. And you would think, okay, if you're Adam and Eve, what are you thinking? I'm about to die. It's over. But what does God do? He starts with the serpent. And before he even talks to Adam and Eve in response to their sin, he makes a promise. He makes a promise just to make sure that it's all on him and not on them. Look at Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, strife, conflict, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that now, but her offspring ultimately is looking all the way forward to Jesus. 
And this is actually called theologically the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And it comes in Genesis chapter 3. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of that points to the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus will crush Satan's head. He will destroy and, and defeat the enemy by his work on the cross. Amen? Because a head wound is a lot worse than a heel wound. Would you agree? But, but Satan's still going to nip at his heel. He's still going to convince people to crucify him. But he's so deceived, he doesn't understand that what he's trying to make happen with Jesus is actually his own destruction. And that's the first promise of the gospel. A lot of times we think of the gospel as John 3, 16. Back it up by one and go to the very beginning, Genesis 3, 15. You've got the first mention of the gospel in all the Bible. And the rest of the Bible then, the rest of the biblical story is all about tracing how God is going to keep this promise. Who's he gonna send? Who's the offspring of the woman? How's he gonna crush the enemy? How's he gonna fix this mess that we've created in our sin? And that's the entire storyline of the Bible. So you see him uh, wipe everybody out except for Noah and his family and start over, right? And this promise is coming through Noah. But then uh, people still sin at the Tower of Babel. And so God confuses their language. And you get to Genesis chapter 12, and we see God's plan has, uh, has more fully unfolded to where now he's going to work. He's going to select an entire people for himself. And he's going to begin with a family, beginning with this guy named Abraham. You heard of him? Maybe you sang the song when you were little. Father Abraham had many sons. Well, see, that's it. it's his. God's going to work through his family, through this new people, this people that he has chosen. And Abram, at the time, his name was still Abram. He's incredibly wealthy. He's living in the land of Ur, which is right along the Persian Gulf. And God shows up and messes with his life because Abram is incredibly wealthy. He, he's comfortable. His entire family is around. He's got it all. He's lived there for 75 years. He's 75 years old when God calls him. And at 75, which tells me if you're still breathing, God's not done, right? At 75, God calls Abram out of his comfort and out of everything he's known. And he calls him on, uh, to embark on this long, slow journey that would require incredible patience and trust in the Lord. God's going to do this through Abram. I want to show you Genesis 12 where God actually makes this. Uh, he calls Abram to follow him. And he, with that call, he makes a promise. And he promises three things to Abraham. And I want to see if you can see them here as we read through the text. I'll, I'll, I'll show them to you in a second, but see if you notice them as we read. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I always think that's really curious. He doesn't tell Abram exactly where he's going. He's just said, go, get going. And on your way, I'll show you where you're going. And he's 75, riding on a donkey, or maybe not a donkey, but a horse or something, right? I mean, that's incredible. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's God's promise to Abram, and that's his call of Abram. 
And he makes three promises to him in that. Um, number one, he promises to make his name great. In other words, he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make you a blessing. You're gonna be a blessing, in fact, Abram, to the entire world. Through you, all peoples will be blessed. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. He's gonna make his name great. And with that comes this idea that he's gonna, God's gonna bless Abram. The second promise he makes right along with this call is that he's gonna make Abram into a great nation. At this point, I told you, how old was he? 75. How many kids does he have? Pop quiz. How many kids does Abram have at this point? Zero. And his, his wife is old too. I mean, she's about 10 years younger than he is. They have no kids. She's barren. And yet God makes this promise. Um, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to, in fact, you're going to have so many descendants, he tells him later, that uh, why don't you just go look at the stars, try to count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Those are some pretty outlandish promises. And then in, uh, he also promises him right away, the third thing, but it was really the first thing that shows up. He promises him a great land. And in Genesis 15, he expounds on how big that is. It's modern day Israel. And I believe uh, a greater part of the region surrounding it as well. So a great name, blessing, great nation, and great land. And this is all in line with God keeping his promise way back from Genesis 3.15. Now he's added personal promises to Abram on top of it. And so we're going to trace this promise. Genesis kind of traces this promise with Abram, these promises, I should say. Uh, So we have Abram and and God eventually does uh, give him a descendant. He, he gives his wife, Sarai, Sarah, gives birth to Isaac when she's 90 years old. And he's 99, about 100. It was, it was 25 years after this promise that God actually kept it, the first part. Isn't that crazy? But, it's, uh, but the writer of, uh, in the New Testament, it tells us in Hebrews that God credited to Abraham righteousness because he believed God. He credited him righteousness because he believed these promises. So Abram has Isaac and uh, Isaac was his one and only son whom God tells uh, Abraham to test his faith that he should sacrifice him. And so uh, he takes Isaac and Isaac is probably a teenager at this point, maybe even a little older. And they climb up uh, Mount Moriah, which is uh, in modern day Jerusalem and uh, they climb up and uh, Isaac is actually a symbol of Jesus here. He carries his own wood for the altar, for the sacrifice, just like Jesus carries the own wood of his cross. And he gets up there, he lays down and Isaac or Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac in obedience when it says the angel of the Lord, who I believe is Jesus says, Abram, stop. And he stops. He says, now I know that you believe me. And so Isaac lives. And Isaac has a couple sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, They're always at odds with one another, always fighting. They're twins. They come out, Jacob actually holding on to Esau's heel. So like from day one, there was no respite from those two going at it. And Jacob, uh, his name actually means deceiver. And he deceives his father, Isaac, in order that he could get the blessing of the firstborn. And God's promise to to Abraham and his promise all the way back from Genesis 3.15 is gonna come through Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob, 
has 12 sons of his own. And Jacob, uh, his family, you wanna talk about dysfunction. Go read the middle of Genesis, right? Oh my goodness, Jacob's family is incredibly messed up. He has 12 sons, uh, one of which he loves, uh, Joseph. He sends out to the others who are uh, working in the field and he sends them with some food. And Joseph was a good guy, but not maybe always the wisest because Joseph started having dreams that all of his brothers were gonna bow down to him and he was gonna rule over them. And foolishly, he starts telling his brothers this. And uh, Jacob, uh, as a doting father, showed great favoritism to Joseph and all of his other brothers knew it. And so they hated him. And so he's showing up one day and they decide, you know what, there's that dreamer, that kid who keeps telling us he's gonna rule over us. I'll I'll give him a dream. And they, they scheme to kill him. They tear off, he had a special coat that was better clothes than all his brothers. And they throw him, they were, gonna, they were gonna kill him, but instead they throw him into a well after beating him up. And then they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And Joseph uh, gets sold to this man. And then when he gets to Egypt, he's uh, betrayed by this man's wife who, who falsely accuses him of rape. He flees. He flees because she tries to seduce him. And then so she falsely accuses him of rape. He's thrown in prison. And through God's miraculous intervention, eventually, uh, somehow, Joseph doesn't remain bitter through all of this or even become bitter. But he he trusts the Lord. He gets through. And God does actually raise him up into a position of influence in Egypt. And so God's promise continued. You saw Judah's name on there. Judah's a whole nother mess we're not gonna get into. But the promise from 315 of Jesus comes through Judah, but through Joseph, they end up in Egypt because he was sold into slavery. And at the end of all this, it's incredible. Joseph's uh, godliness, he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 40, that uh, to his brothers who've come to him because of a famine for food and he reveals who he is and you should go read it. It's a good story. Uh, and don't have time to cover it all right now. I, I could try, but I don't think you'd like me. Um, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And through God's grace, he worked all of these things to where now Joseph is in Egypt. Now throughout the process, there were some check marks going off up there, right? Um, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God began to make Abram's name great. There's part one of that promise to Abram. When they get to Egypt, they end up being there for 400 years. Joseph uh, is the guy who gets them there to Egypt. And during this time, God's promise of making Abram's descendants into a great nation is kept. And they multiply greatly in number. And that's what sets up the whole uh, narrative of Exodus. They're so great in number that Pharaoh is in fear of them. And then God, after 400 years, keeping this promise, making Abram's descendants into a great nation, he's gonna start fulfilling this third part of his promise to give them a great land. And so when you get to Exodus 1, that sets up Exodus for you. And the whole story of the Exodus is about God keeping that third part of his promise to Abram of giving him and his descendants the land of Israel. And so they're gonna leave and make their way. Moses is gonna lead them out and they're gonna make their way to Israel to receive the land that God had promised because God keeps all of his promises. 
Now, I've told you that all of this is about Jesus. It all points forward to Jesus. That's like our first core value, right? It's all about who? Jesus. And, and the Exodus, if anything in the Old Testament is about Jesus, the Exodus event is. And what I want you to see here, so we've set up kind of the storyline. Now I want to set up some of the theme of Exodus for you. Because the theme of Exodus is redemption. And it all points forward to Jesus. And friends, Jesus is our redemption. He's our redeemer. He redeems us. So what what is redemption? Well, redemption is the means by which God delivers us from sin and frees us from its effects. He pays our ransom and our penalty for sin. He renews us and restores God's original intention for humankind. And it's all accomplished through Jesus. So what I want you to see here is there's kind of three themes or three three pieces of redemption. You might think of it as like the three sides of a door frame, which shows up in Exodus as well. But the first side of that door frame is this, deliverance. See, Jesus is our redemption. He delivers us. Deliverance is about movement from slavery to freedom, from bondage to sin to life in Jesus Christ. And the Exodus is all about that, right? It's, it's about freeing God's people as slaves and giving them freedom. And Jesus' work on the cross is all about delivering us, of freeing us from our bondage to sin and giving us life the way it's meant to be, life that's abundant. It's synonymous, redemption is, with being liberated, freed, or rescued from bondage and slavery to a person or thing. See, he delivers us from slavery. It, To be a slave, here's the definition of being a slave from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. To be a slave is to be completely subservient or overcome by a dominating influence. Well, Peter writes, he says, uh, uh, they, false gods, idols, promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And all of us begin as slaves of sin. We begin our lives uh, corrupt like our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. We've sinned. First John tells us that we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But Ephesians really sums it up in chapter two. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's who you were. See, but Jesus delivers us from slavery, from slavery. Galatians 4, eight says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. I want to read to you from a book uh, by a guy named Mike Wilkerson, uh, freed from Jesus, from freed by Jesus from the idols we carry and the wound idols we worship and wounds we carry. He says, if you've been abused, he's speaking of this deliverance aspect of redemption. You may relate to the metaphor of slavery being overcome by evil, taken captive against your will, plunged into a world of pain, confusion, and fear. The wounds of abuse can be dominating influences, complicating relationships with people, sometimes resulting in difficulty trusting others, preoccupation with others' approval, feeling alone in the world. It can also result in a seemingly irresistible urge to grow bitter or seek revenge. If you've been, similarly, if you've been addicted, you may also relate to the slavery metaphor. Your life has been out of control, dominated by the influence of addiction. 
Perhaps despite your desire to be free, you've gone back again and again to the addiction. It's cost you dearly money, pain, relationships, and it's left you in misery beneath a load of guilt and shame. This is slavery. Yet it's slavery we've chosen, isn't it? It's voluntary slavery. And Jesus frees us from that, friends. Jesus frees us from it. In the opening chapters of Exodus, God's people are in slavery. We give no indication that they bear responsibility for their condition. It's just happened. And sometimes things like this just happen to us. Other times we choose them. But in any case, they've been overcome by evil and his name is Pharaoh. And God hears the cries of his people. He remembers them and he's gonna deliver them. And that's what happens in Exodus. So Jesus is our redemption. He delivers us from slavery to freedom. Not freedom to do whatever you want, but freedom to do and be who God wants you to be. Freedom from sin, freedom from that past self. Freedom from addiction, freedom from fill in the blank. Isn't that good news? That's what the gospel means, good news. And Jesus is the one who frees. We don't do anything to, he he does it. He frees us. That's the gospel. He's delivered us, Colossians 1 says, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He delivers us, Jesus is our redemption, he delivers us and he also, he ransoms us. He ransoms us. Uh, What I want you to see here is our redemption is costly. Ransom is the high price that, that Jesus paid to purchase our freedom. Here's the second part of the door frame, ransom. Framing up redemption. Jesus' death on the cross is the high high price God paid for our redemption. There was high prices paid in the Exodus itself to redeem God's people. A ransom paid. Now, what's really curious is that uh, the Bible never really tells us uh, who that ransom is paid to. Theologians talk about it all the time that the ransom's paid to God and all this and that, but the Bible never really mentions who the ransom is paid to, just that Jesus paid our ransom. He ransomed us. And I think that the big idea to be laid out here is simply that uh, Jesus paid a high price for our redemption. It was costly. In fact, Paul writes that, right? He says, you were bought with a price, so do not become bond servants of men. You were bought with a price, friends. It was costly to God. He delivers us. Jesus is our redemption. He delivers us. He ransoms us. And the third door frame, part of the door frame, is that he renews us. He renews us. Redemption is, in effect, the renewing of creation. It's, it's God restoring everything back to the way he had originally designed back before Genesis 3 in the fall. Remember Genesis 1 and 2 and everything was really good? Well, Jesus coming and being our redemption is securing the way and and basically beginning the process of making everything, and he'll complete the process of making everything the way it was originally meant to be, renewing us. He delivers us, he frees us, he ransoms us, he pays the price, pays the penalty for our sin, and, and he renews us, he makes us new. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if you are in Christ, you are what kind of a creation? New, 
what's gone away? The old and what's come? The new. Those old addictions, those old things that you've done or chosen or that have happened to you, they're redeemed. You're made new. Isn't that great news? So while you might look at it and maybe you still even feel a sense of shame for it, as you look back, you can go, yeah, that's true. And yeah, that was true. But this is what's true now. Jesus is my redemption. He's delivered me. He's ransomed me. And he's renewing me. And so we live in this already not yet to where uh, God's kingdom has come, but we haven't totally, not, we have not yet been fully renewed. We, the renewal process has begun, but not yet fully. And there's a little chart on the bottom of your notes there that you can look at. And I'm not gonna take the time to explain all of that right now. But friends, here's what I want you to see. As we study the book of Exodus, we're gonna look at it through this door frame or this lens of redemption of of deliverance, of ransom, of renewal. And so if you want to read ahead, if you want to read the first few chapters of of Exodus this week, go for it and and look for those themes as you read. They're all about redemption. And at the same time, we're always going to be looking forward to Jesus' work on the cross because Jesus is our redemption. He's the one ultimately who delivers us and ransoms us and renews us you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you've never become a Christian, and it's so simple. Jesus loves you with a love that you cannot imagine. You are more deeply loved than you would ever even hope or dream that you're loved. So much so that he lived a perfect life. He died a criminal's death, your death and my death on the cross. And the Bible says that whoever would believe in him Whoever would believe in their heart, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. See, because you you are, you and I, we're, we're more wicked and evil than we ever feared, but we're more loved by Jesus than we ever dreamed. And if you would simply believe and trust him, you'd be saved. He would be your redemption. Amen. We're gonna close, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing that song, uh, Simple Gospel again about that truth and uh, then we'll call it a morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is our redemption. Jesus, thank you that you've delivered us. You've delivered us from the power of sin. You've delivered us from from death. You've given us eternal life. Uh, To anyone, Jesus, who would simply believe. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid our ransom. You paid a price that we could never pay in full with your life, with your death and your burial and your resurrection. Lord, and we thank you that you're renewing us, that by your spirit, you're making us new, that the old has gone, the old, while it may be true, Jesus, your love's conquered it. Your work on the cross has put an end to it. And that even while maybe we still sin and we still struggle, there's coming a day when that renewal It's already here, but not yet fully, and it will be here fully. Lord, I pray again for those who've never trusted you that they might even today. Thank you for Jesus and the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.